You are listening to Prevention is the New Cure, all things health and NHS with a political twist. And that's with me, Dr Helen Stokes-Lampard and Steve Bryan, MP. Hi, Helen. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? All right. Nice to see you again. It feels like ages, actually, because we had a bit of a half-term break. But we... this is episode 24. Wow. And today we got a guest joining us later on. So we're going to talk about preventing harm in the community in A&E departments, which sounds like an interesting idea. So you'll introduce a bit more of that later. And uh, last time, do you remember we had uh, Victoria Atkins? No I less. couldn't forget. She was great. We did have a really wide discussion, didn't we? We and did. We pitched a lot of questions to her. I have to say, I'm quite impressed that she managed to deal with them all. I'm still impressed that she managed to remember all the things in the Pharmacy First uh, initiative, all the different diseases. Um. There was there was a lot of talk. We talked about vaping, all sorts of things. What stood out for you? Um, yeah, pharmacy first, I think is really important. Uh, it's something that I, I did the trial on when I was the pharmacy minister uh, back in Theresa May's government up in the northeast of England around hypertension. And they've now obviously launched it as of the 31st of January around the seven conditions. And we actually had Community Pharmacy England in front of the select committee earlier this week, and they were saying, you know, that it's it's going really, really well. Yeah. Um, there's been tens of thousands of consultations, and really the logical consequence now is to take it into chest infections. Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether that actually happens. And I guess really the proof will be in the pudding, won't it, as to whether general practice see it as a success and feel that they can trust it and i just wonder from yeah. your point of view as a gp what are you hearing about pharmacy first well it's funny i was in surgery yesterday one of my colleagues the one who was the emergency doctor for the day was uh, sent out a message to us all be warned pharmacy because we're, we're using it actively already and signposting patients actively and whereas a few of our local pharmacies had been involved in pilots now suddenly they're all involved um pharmacy was if you refer for a urinary tract infection, they're only able to prescribe one type of antibiotic. So don't send patients who've got an allergy to, in our case, nitrofurantoin. So that was, but in a sense, for me, that showed it's working, it's up and it's becoming business as usual already. And that's the thing with a good idea. It rapidly gets adopted as business as usual. Um, so that was good. And there's obviously little things to iron out. And obviously that's something that could be expanded with pharmacists able to prescribe more than one antibiotic for people who are known, have a known allergy and so on. That's, that's just logical next steps and evolution of the programme. And, and but our receptionists have just picked it up as is just another one when we're doing the triaging, just another place they can navigate patients to. So yeah, which is good. exactly what was meant to happen because you know pharmacy is part of primary care. It should yeah. be seen as part of primary care. They are uh, trained clinical professionals, um, and some of them are independent prescribers as well. But here's yeah. the here's the rub. Here's what concerns me about it. In the first weekend that pharmacy first launched, I had to go to a pharmacy in my constituency to get some throat lozenges for, for my boy. And I was in the queue for probably about 20 minutes or so, which was annoying, but actually not unhelpful because I was watching, not in a creepy way, just watching as you do. Yeah, and uh, in that 20 minutes that I was there, three people came in and tried to redeem their prescription. And the pharmacist said, we don't have that one. There's a national shortage on that particular oh. drug. You need to go and check it out with some other pharmacies to see if they've got it. Yeah. There is a, an alternative that would do the same thing, but I can't give it to you. Yeah, you have to go, back, go to back to GP for it. So I'm not saying that pharmacy first won't help the workload in general practice, but medicine shortages could oh. just be the drag weight that replaces some of those people that have come out of um, 
general practice going back to you guys asking the prescription for the replacement. Does that make sense? Totally does. And you do absolutely. That's my lived reality, Steve. We spend a vast amount of time um, frustrating for patients, pharmacists, and for GPs and their teams with patients ping ponging between the three. Now, nowadays we don't. We do all prescribing electronically. Virtually nothing gets printed until this situation happens when the pharmacist can't fulfil a prescription. There is a challenge about, we have no way of knowing what's in stock or not as GPs. I mean, you get these national messages that come out, but they're out of date five minutes after they're sent. There's nothing live on our digital, our electronic patient records that we know. And sometimes you're left wondering, what the heck can I prescribe? What have you got? Now, we used to have a pharmacy based inside our health centre. I frequently would just run down the corridor and stick my head around and say, what have you actually got in stock that I can give? And quick chat with a pharmacist, we'd find an answer. But they've outgrown the space in our surgery because pharmacy first means they need consulting rooms in which to talk to patients and they've moved out the building. So I've lost that fast access. And I mean, there are a hundred permutations of this, but we can do better. There must be some ways of getting live dashboards, what's available, what suitable alternatives. And we had emergency legislation in um, during the pandemic, which allowed pharmacists to make appropriate safe substitutions. And I'm intensely frustrated that that's not being used now when simple things like different dose combinations. So, for example, the 100 milligram tablet isn't available, but they've got 50s. So just give two 50s then. That's just logical. And pharmacists know it and want to be able to do it, but they're often not allowed to because of the, the rules. You were slightly scary then for a minute. Was I? I thought, my God, yeah, no, just give two 50s. But, but <laughs> here's, the, here's the concern that some people express, which I don't think is actually borne out by the evidence, is that if you have too much of that independent prescribing and replacement and and pharmacists prescribing more than they are at the moment, that there will be an over-prescribing of drugs and that will hit our antimicrobial resistance. Now, the evidence in other settings in other countries doesn't bear that fear out exactly. but it's a fear that some express yeah it is a fear and i mean you you have to be the only thing about being careful is about pharmacists interests as business owners and creating work for their own business right. once you take that out it they are highly trained professionals they are regulated professionals and actually for goodness sake we need to treat professionals with a certain degree of respect and, and autonomy and let them be the professionals they're trained to be and then come down on them hard if they fail to live up to that professional standard yeah. you know we are the most regulated healthcare system in the world by a very long way i think we can yeah. re regulate for this so there you go that's pharmacy first uh i hope it's going to be a success i think it needs to be I yeah. think it needs to be for the health service and for general yeah. practice, but let's let's see. There's a big publicity campaign that started this week about you know there is this new service and there's stuff adverts online. I don't think that there's enough knowledge of it though. No. You know, I think if you went out there on the on Westminster Bridge now and asked people, I'm not sure they would have much knowledge of there being a new service. But anyway, just moving on uh, off the back of Secretary of State discussion as well, we talked a bit about the old dental plan didn't we hey your spidey senses were right you said that i have a sneaky feeling it's on the way and there it was did it give <laughs> did it deliver steve was it what yes you wanted? it may have been a sneaky feeling or it may have been a little birdie insider knowledge either way it was published uh that week and look i mean there's a there's a lot to it i think it's funding and it's reform so we're talking about making it easier for overseas dentists to come and work here. We're talking about dental vans for low coverage areas, so rural and coastal areas. We're talking about um, similar sort of scheme that we have to attract GPs to take partnerships in different areas. Yeah. Twenty thousand pound golden handcuffs. That reminds well, me of someone. Well, in general practice, that, uh, twenty golden handcuffs reminds me of someone I knew at university. But let's not go there. <laughs> 
Um, another time, another time. Uh, she she was fun. Anyway, um, but the <laughs> point being is that you know the the aim is to increase appointment capacities by about two and a half million extra appointments wow. next year. Yeah. I worry about this because I worry that it sounds like I always worry, but I do worry you, because you the do. thing is, there's nothing in here that actually promises any imminent contract reform. And what yeah. I said in the House of Commons was, every day that this current units of dental activity contract is in place is a problem. And the British Dental Association have sort of backed me up on that. I mean, yes, Sarah, as we spoke to a few weeks ago, didn't we, on the podcast, we were talking about this. It was very much a contract reform needs to be at the heart of anything going forward. So so we, what is this, a A for effort, but a B plus, B minus? Yeah, I think it's a B. Yeah, okay. I think it's a straight B. Fair enough. Moving on. Moving um, on. Um, what have you been up to? You've got some news for us. Yeah, so I, you know, declaring interest and all that stuff. By the time the podcast goes out, it'll be announced that I am now on the board of NHS England. I have joined as a non-executive director starting as of the 19th of February officially. So it's going to be very interesting, bring some different perspectives. Well done you. Well, congratulations. That's really mm. great. You'll be working with some really interesting people. Yeah, it would be nice to be able to bring a primary care perspective to the board. So... We are going to quite a few things we're quite keen to talk about this week because we also got the guest. Um, measles. Yep. Mobile phones. Right. Earwax. I thought we were going to have three M's there, but that was going to be too much. Okay. <laughs> measles. measles. Yeah, measles. Yeah, well, we've we've actually had the first confirmed case in our practice now. We thought we'd had a case before, but it wasn't confirmed. But we've now definitely had a case. Do you know it's amazing how it focuses the minds of people to get people get their kids and loved ones vaccinated when there's a case in your town. Um, so we've yeah. actually developed a practice protocol for how to do it. Do you know, it, it brought the whole pandemic stuff flooding back about how we had to, you know, infection prevention control issues in full. Um, but, you know, like everywhere, general practice steps up to ramp up the vaccinations. Uh, I know all practices around the country are frantically chasing down anyone on their list who has not been vaccinated. I mean, everyone gets offered the chance many times, but this is focused minds. It's a nasty illness, you know, really nasty, Steve. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And just to be clear for those who who listen, vaccination, best way to protect you, as you say, symptoms, ex mm. high fever, yeah, which could be lots of things, but blotchy red or brown rash, coughing, sneezing, often sore eyes, yeah, red and watery eyes, mm. um, you know, just well, well worth chalking up those things and keeping a note of them, isn't it? Because, you know, it, obviously it clears up usually within what a week 10 days yeah. but can be pretty severe the complications can't it it really can i mean it can be fatal and but you can have sort of types of pneumonia you can have meningitis with it, it causes blindness in, in so you know this is this is very nasty totally preventable um but the one of the big problems it is so incredibly infectious and it's infectious for a very long time before people get symptoms so that's where one of the challenges had anyway it's yeah. we've got big clusters midlands london northwest humber they're expecting clusters elsewhere so you know we have got exactly the problem that's been predicted for the last couple of years unfortunately should we talk about mobile phones yeah so you're worried so, about mobile phones steve well i'll tell you the thing is that Here's a confession, right? As a parent of two uh -huh. teenagers, I fail every day. Okay. And being away at half term, we were on a long car journey. It's obvious 
more than ever to Susie and I, my wife, that the pull of these devices is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And and the issue sort of has gone right up the scale in recent weeks since the tragic murder of Brianna Gay. Yeah. And her mum is now leading calls for under 16s to no longer be allowed access to a smartphone. I'm sure you heard it. And there's yeah. lots of campaigns in going in on. Time. Probably the most high profile campaign is called Stick to Bricks, as in stick to the old Nokia phone, which, you know, just about makes a call and just about sends a text message. Yeah. But those campaigns are really getting noticed. And basically the argument goes that, you know, we don't know, a bit like vaping, we don't know what this addiction, because I suspect in their heart hearts, our kids know they're addicted to this endless tedious scroll of tiktok and instagram and yeah. the other social media channels but we don't know do we what that is doing to their young bright brains young brains young brains is it you know is it rewiring their young brains so they can't they struggle to concentrate on anything for very long well i mean i'm sure we could get somebody on to talk about this in due course and perhaps we should look for somebody who's a bit of an expert in it because i know i'm not what i do know is in clinical practice i see regularly um kids usually teenagers being brought in very reluctantly by parents who are desperately worried and the meltdowns that happen if a th the threat or the reality of taking a phone away is quite something to behold so you are right Steve in that there are a lot of neurological changes coming uh, you know that we don't truly understand I mean there have always been worries about you know oh, kids getting square eyes and watching too much telly there is always something that is worrying parents about children and their usage. And we also know that mobile phones give them access to a phenomenal amount of information. There are security elements to having a phone. And so this is, these are complex arguments. And the challenge about blanket bans is that they don't, they, I guess they don't give our young people credit for the positive use that they can put to these things um i'm trying to be balanced here I, this isn't the bbc well look um, yeah, they can they can because obviously you know there obviously there are diabetics who use the smartphone for oh, all sorts so of connections else, yeah. and we're going to come on in a minute talk about mobile phones and schools because that's been in the news this week mm -hmm. and you know often teachers will ask children to get out their phones to access something do a bit of research yeah. on something and all of the homework um, apps, I guess what, on a smartphone. Yeah. But I, I guess, you know, the point that I'm making just before we get on to that is this sort of dopamine hit that yeah. as it's described as, you know, the white lights of the of the phone and the social media. And we don't know the long-term consequences of it. Now, you know, we are running a podcast here about prevention. You know, mm -hmm. the government spent about 100 million quid in, in the last two years on soaring mental health problems in among yeah. school pupils they are you know, i think more than a million children each year refer to cam services whether they can get into them is another matter but that's because demand is outstripping supply and you know i, I just wonder whether it's time to to be more radical and other parts of the world are doing so so let's move on to the suggestion about mobile phones in schools. Yeah, so Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, has this week made good on a promise that's been kicking around for years, which mm. is that we will, quotes, ban mm. mobile phones in schools, end mm. Now, in practice, what she means by that is that new guidance has been sent to head teachers. So I spoke to a number of head teachers this mm. week, my patch, and I, I guess the rubber will hit the road on this one. The moment of truth, if you want to put it that way, is to see whether any of this will actually be any different to what schools are already doing. Mm. 
And speaking to head teachers in my patch, what they mean by ban mobile phones is that they got to stay in their school bag switched off during the school day. Now, does that happen? Well, yeah, for some kids it does, but of course for many not. And, you know, I think we should recognize here that teachers every bit as much as us parents um, are are right on the front line here. And, And it's a really, really difficult situation. But if you're, you know, if some people say we should just ban them completely. So children shouldn't be able to have a mobile phone in school. They should hand them in at the start of the school day and collect them at the end of the school day. But, you know, I've got schools where children travel quite quite a long distance on the bus from Basingstoke down into Winchester. And for them not to have any access to a to a device at all, I think is probably a, a safeguarding safety issue. So not to mention the practicalities of schools taking in a phone at the start of the day and then handing it back. You've got teaching Who gets unions. the right one back. Yeah, you've got teaching unions saying don't handle money, don't handle phones, because these are expensive pieces of kit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you did have that, would kids just hand in the burner phone and keep their uh, iPhone in their bag, which they then go and use in the toilet at break time? So it, it's an absolute nightmare. It's, it's a an minefield. absolute mine, minefield. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, is the genie out the bottle, Helen? suspect it is steve but i think there are ways of managing i mean i think you know no no use of phones in the classroom there are ways of doing this that that are um i think in a sense it'll give more power to t- head teachers elbows and that's a good thing and um, knowing that there is you know guidance that backs them can be helpful for teachers particularly in areas where these things have not been tackled before there'll be many areas and many schools where this is already part of the normal culture and my dad if i mentioned my dad was a head teacher of a large school in south wales for many years and i mean this this challenge is is post the time that he retired but there are many times where head teachers feel out on a limb when they're trying to uphold high standards what they believe to be the morally right and responsible thing to do there will always be a small group of parents who are vehemently opposed to any change they bring in and so strong clear guidance that backs the head teachers in trying to do what the majority think is the right thing i'm sure would be very welcome you know what i'm tempted to say don't you what why don't you just switch off your television set and go and do something, do less, something boring less boring instead, boring instead. <laughs> <laughs> that ages us both which tv series was that helen that was why don't you why don't you Exactly. Oh, Why okay. don't you switch off your mobile phone and go and do something less boring instead? Yeah, I know. Go, it's oh, a good line. Very moment. retro, Steve. Very retro. <laughs> no, I know. Most, <laughs> most people are just like, what on earth are they on about? Um, anyway, <laughs> okay, moving on. Earwax. On the subject of earwax, which yeah. you, you're going to raise the subject of earwax. Go on. Well, I know earwax is one of those very divisive topics. Some people love to talk about earwax as in any other bodily fluids or bodily products. Um, Others detest talking about it. But as a GP, earwax comes into my consulting room very regularly and gets talked about a lot. And I am frustrated that we have such a postcode lottery for earwax management and removal across the country, across the UK. It's not commissioned properly. And... I mean, there was a story in the BBC News a couple of weeks ago that about 10 million people in England cannot access free services for earwax removal, which includes in my area, by the way. Um, and the problem with earwax is that because people laugh about it, but it's a hideously distressing problem and it messes up people's ability to use hearing aids. And if you can't use your hearing aids properly, you become socially isolated, depressed and all sorts of challenges ensue. And it is such a treatable, manageable condition that... I think we are storing up all sorts of problems for ourselves by not treating it. And we can do so. Any thoughts? So doing it on the NHS is really, really difficult to, to find. Um, there are, and, uh, you know, declaring, de- asking for a friend, <laughs> declaring an interest. Because I was just saying to the to producers of our podcast earlier, you know, I can't, I can't hear what's coming out of the monitor. I can't hear Helen very clearly. And um, when we were away last week, um, my ears were definitely 
blocked and uh and my wife said oh you want to go and get that you want to go and get that hopey ear candle thing um or basically your earwax and some, one of our friends who was with us uh said oh i went and got my earwax removed and then he had a photo on his phone of what came out of his ear and he showed it at dinner i mean honestly helen it was you know we were there enjoying a burger and he showed a picture of his earwax i took it interested who does that? But anyway, so I think that I need my ears seeing too. Okay. Well, you know, GP advice, you know, assuming you're not in pain, you're not feverish, it's probably just simple earwax buildup. Get yourself some simple eardrops, olive oil eardrops, sodium bicarbonate drops, three days of use of one, swap to the other. Make sure when you put them in, you lie on your side for at least 20 minutes on each side, then flip around and do the other ear. It's a do it twice a day. It takes quite a lot of discipline. A lot of time. Yeah, well, Monty, the my Labrador, and I both need our ears doing. So we. Well, could, you're probably we, a lot easier to get Monty sorted than yourself. Yeah, we could have an ear thing together. Is he? He went away to see Sharon when we were away last week. Oh, Hartford. he likes Sharon. So, yeah, he likes Sharon, and there's a WhatsApp group called Monty's Holly Bags, which is set up with me and the kids and her and Susie on it, and then we get constant pictures of him doing things, and uh, you know, I. I was slightly jealous at how much he seemed to be enjoying himself. But anyway, yeah. he was fine. When I picked him up, he was dad's dog again. So, okay, well, him. just don't go and try sorting out Monty's earwax yourself, okay? <laughs> okay. Dogs like humans. Don't stick small things into into. Don't ears. stick things in your ears. I once put a bit of Lego up my nose when I was a kid. Have you, have you I... ever had that? In uh, we, we, we should ask our guest. Um, I wonder if you ever had that in the surgery. Someone come I... in with a bit of Lego up their nose. I, I, I stuck a peanut up my nose when I was little. Yeah. Well, I suppose there are probably worse places that you could stick things. There are indeed. indeed. Little boys. End up in A&E getting a nut removed. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a break and then you're going to introduce our guest. I am delighted to welcome a friend and a colleague to the podcast, Steve. I'd like you to meet Dr. Adrian Boyle, who's a consultant in emergency medicine at Cambridge University Hospitals Trust and president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. So, Adrian, it's a huge welcome for me. And I think Steve wants to say hello because you've met before, haven't you? We have met before. Adrian, this is a more less formal setting than last time I saw you, which is when you're sitting in front of my select committee giving <laughs> evidence, which sounds terribly like you're in court, but you're not. Uh, but anyway, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Yeah, great to be here. So, Adrian, you and I started chatting about some awesome work you've been doing, and we'd like to pick up on that in a second. But I think the first thing we wanted to check on you is that you are, are you feeling OK? You've had recently had quite a nasty cycling accident. Are you on properly on the mend? Uh, yeah, I'm getting better. So a month ago, I fell off my bike. I broke my hip uh, and I had uh, personal and lived experience of being a emergency medicine patient in my own department. So it was slightly surreal, um, but, you know. I've been operated on and I'm getting better, but it's a slow process, but it does create a bit of time to do fun stuff like this. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you here, but that's definitely not the reason why we would have wanted you to be on the sh- on the podcast. Um, I'm interested in that being on the other side experience thing. I know we need to get on to the important stuff that you want to talk about in a second. Um, sharing the experience, learning points for your colleagues, for the rest of us. Yeah, so it's interesting. I've been thinking about what does it change the way I see the problems in emergency care? Uh, And I don't think it does. Um, It sort of reinforces that an ambulance delay, and there was an ambulance delay for me, is actually really distressing, not just for the patients, but actually the bystanders around you. Um, And that was quite something. We were initially told it was going to be two hours before an ambulance could get to me. I'm sitting there on the side of the pavement with a broken hip 
in sub-zero temperatures and you know by the time the ambulance picked me up I was hypothermic and shivering oh my gosh uh and then when I arrive at the hospital I'm told I'm the 12th in the queue to be offloaded into the department um and you can see actually you know it was fine no harm was going to come to me it was just going to be a bit tedious and a bit painful but actually if I'd been seriously injured um with something significant that could have been a bit a bit of a problem Oh, if you had those comorbidities, I mean, I have to say hypothermia in the back of an ambulance is no joy as a start. So, you know, knowing you're bleeding into your hip as well. Anyway. Adrian, Adrian is your bike okay? Well, it's slightly scuffed on the back, but if anybody wants to buy bikes, I've got a whole selection of bikes in my garage now for sale because I'm slightly salty uh, about cycling at the moment. Don't get Steve started. <laughs> See, I'm worried about the bike, Helen. You know how I worry. I know but how you, you know are. what? We've got a children's hospice in Winchester in my constituency called Nomi House and Jack's Place. And they have got this recycled bike hub, which has raised £50,000, right? So what you do is you take a bike in there and they will then recycle it and sell it for the hospice. So if you've got bikes to get rid of, Adrian, I know just the people. Nomi House Hospice down in Winchester. It might be a bit far for you, but you know, let me know. Right. Carry on. Adrian, tell us about the awesome things you're doing with data in A&E. Tell me what's been going on. Okay. So as an emergency doctor, um, I, we tend not to think very much about prevention. And I know that's the key theme of this. But mm. there are actually things that emergency departments can do to promote um, good health. And I've been involved with a programme um, that I do in my own hospital and a number of other hospitals do around trying to reduce violent crime in our communities. So the intervention, um, and it was initially trialled in Cardiff, so where you come from, yeah. is that when a patient with an assault turns up, the receptionists ask them three key uh, questions, in addition to all the usual stuff that they ask them. When did the assault occur? Where did the assault occur? And where, whether a weapon was used? Okay. Takes doesn't take very long to ask those yeah. three questions, you know, um, and quite often patients will tell you this automatically. They say, oh, yeah. I was outside the dog and duck and I got hit over the head with a brick. Yeah. And that is the information. How long did that happen? Oh, about 20 minutes ago. That's yeah. sort of information. Yeah. Each month, this information, and there's a lot of assaults that go into emergency plants, gets collated, shared in an anonymous aggregate form with the Community Safety Partnership. Now, the Community Safety Partnership comprises police, local authority, fire and rescue, um, and all the people who are actually charged with trying to reduce violence um, in a community. And then they know they've got additional evidence around where hotspots are. Because one of the things underlying this is, of all the people who go to emergency departments after an assault, only about 25% of them are ever actually known to the police in any form. There's a big... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's you can imagine it's less likely um, if it's a domestic assault, yeah. Um, there's lots of unrecorded crime. So even if the police were absolutely perfect at identifying perpetrators, arresting people, there'd still be a lot of violent crime representing to health. And we see this time and time again. There's all sorts of studies um, that have shown that the vast majority of violent crime victims who go to healthcare are not recorded by the police. And it's never gone over um, 25%. Wow. 
That's really interesting. And so certainly in general practice, we see a lot of domestic um, violence of the sort of people who won't go to A&E or turn up, you know, sort of weeks later with deformed fingers or resolving hematomas and so on, and are adamant that they won't let us involve the police. And unless, of course, there's a safeguarding issue, we, we tend to respect their confidentiality. So we know there's an issue there. But this is obviously about more violent stuff. Steve, what's, what's, it, what's this raising for you? So where exactly does this happen? Presumably it's more your your Cardiffs, your Londons, your Manchesters than it is your Winchesters, or am I wrong? So England and Wales, there's about 300,000 uh, assault victims who go to emergency departments each year. Um, and you're right, it is the places with the big nighttime economy. A lot of this is actually related to deprivation. You're much more likely to be assaulted uh, and require hospital treatment if you live in a deprived area. Um, and it's, the, you know, that's the where. It's also the who. It's mainly young men. And it's also um, mainly men between the ages of about 15 to 30. It's that age group. Yeah. So uh, you said that you send aggregated and confidential data. So this isn't breaching anyone's confidentiality. You're, you're collecting the data, a bit like Cluedo style, you know, you know, blokes, dog and duck with bats and bricks or whatever or knives or presumably you can pick up things like clusters of knife incidents yeah so uh, people get very excited about knife crime knife crime is highly clustered in a few key areas where it is a huge problem so it tends to be the big urban areas and we're talking the the big city centers so you know very obviously London. in the londons the manchesters uh, mm. and the liverpools it's very very clustered okay the vast majority of assaults that go to emergency departments across the uk are nothing to do with knife crime Okay. So in my own hospital, we see about six to seven hundred assaults a year, mm. of which there are probably less than 20 stabbings. OK, so what this is, is it's an intelligence gathering operation, isn't it? But yeah. it, it feels to me like, you know, is there a role for the dreaded, excited AI here in the is this not a computer program tool where you feed in information and it looks for patterns, which is one of the benefits that AI can bring and saves that human time. Because what we don't want to do, do we, is find your your staff in emergency departments um, distracted from their clinical responsibilities. Yeah. So, I mean, think about AI as a way of just handling data well and doing clever yeah. things with data. What this depends on is somebody collecting that data in the first place. So let me give you some examples of how this get data gets used. So in my local patch, um, we identified that there was a problem near a, near a homeless shelter. And this came along at the same time that a local supermarket, um, and I'm not going to name names because that's probably unhelpful for your podcast, but, you know, every little bit helps, uh -huh. uh, wanted to start selling alcohol 24 hours a day opposite a homeless shelter. The police initially objected. The supermarket then put in an appeal, and I was called to give evidence and say, how many assaults have you seen near the homeless shelter? And we gave them data and we said, look, there's about 50 assaults a year. We also augmented this with ambulance data and the police. And it was the, the appeal was thrown out. That supermarket is not allowed to sell alcohol next to a homeless shelter. It seems like an obvious thing that you, sh you should try and stop. But yeah. actually, the idea of all these homeless people, many of them got massive substance misuse problems, having access to alcohol at three o'clock in the morning didn't fill anyone with enthusiasm. Yeah. What do the police think of this? Um, so the police find it useful because what you do is you also tell them about areas that they don't know most police um are a little bit wary of it because you find them another area that they may have to respond to 
you also give them evidence which they can use in licensing authority uh, licensing appeals um, to augment their own data and they can say oh yes we've had this number of police call outs to this place and this number of assaults come to this place which makes them gives them a strong case to turn down a licensing application i mean i think this is great so how widespread is it Adrian? i think you implied this because miss d was implying we should put this into ai and do it nationally i think you were suggesting it was not yet a national thing yeah, so the implementation is difficult. Um, so we, the best we've been, you know, I've been banging my head against getting people to do this for the last twenty years. Yeah. Um, at one stage, under the coalition commitment, um, it there was a coalition commitment to get this to work, and we got to a state where we thought about sixty percent of emergency departments across the country were doing this well. Okay. Um, it has drifted a bit, um, partly because there's no incentive for people to do it. Yeah. And it is different business. Um, some people actually find it quite hard to do, and it requires a little bit of local leadership and maintenance to it. We do it really well in my local place because the receptionists really buy into it, and it's actually mm. they've been given the reason to do it, and they can see the benefit. And a lot of them, they're middle-aged women, they have teenage sons who go out and go drinking in city centre, so they're very invested in trying to keep the city centre safe. So is that yeah, it? cool. Well, well done, you. I mean, what, what, what else could? It's obviously, you know, we're all about prevention, right? And we're on prevention sort of upstream. Um, this is less upstream, isn't it? But I mean, what, what else can EDs do then to prevent violent injury turning up on the on the floor of your emergency department? Well, I think there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things. So this is very targeted against nighttime economy and nighttime violence. I think yeah. there are absolutely things that we can be doing to prevent subsequent violence. And that's actually around having pathways and referral pathways for things for people who are running into trouble. And that may be things like child safeguarding, yeah, and having good responses to children who turn up um, who are getting into trouble. And I think there's a, you know, there's absolutely this first thing that, that a society needs to do is look after people well for their first thousand days. And you know, Andrea Ledson did a really good piece of work with the pediatricians about how you bring bring up children well for the first thousand days. But there's also a bit trying to head people off when they're sort of getting into a bit of trouble age 13 to 15 before they go to the bad. Yeah. Pathways, again, around domestic abuse for women who present initially to emergency violence and disclosure abuse, having a pathway to refer somebody on to what's called a, a domestic violence advocate or support service. I think that's also helpful in, in reducing further attacks. And then just picking up on that one, Adrian, sort of, you know, I bring it back to the primary care perspective. Domestic violence is always one that I struggle with because it's always, for me, it's incredibly hard to get them to go to the police, involve the police. And I do wonder if there's something, have we got, have you got examples of where there's sort of good primary secondary care collaborations in these sort of things? Because I've heard that some good ones exist. I just haven't seen or experienced yeah. one. So I, I have a slightly, I mean, I think the police have a marginal and difficult role with domestic abuse. Yeah. The greatest things that we can do around um, helping victims of domestic abuse aren't, are not necessarily criminal justice based. And actually, I mean, there are, you know, there's a high end where yeah. people need non-molestation orders and they also need to know that a dangerous man is going to be locked up. Yeah. But there's a lower level where, of advocacy and support, which I think is probably more helpful for more people. And I think health, get, having the ability to refer on, mm. that is a much better thing. Because there's a lot of this about soft intelligence. I mean, I know we're going off into a slight tangent now, Steve, yeah. but there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, do you see, I mean, I'm not sure this is as much of a thing out in um, 
leafy Cambridge. Am I allowed to say that? Um, <laughs> no judgments about lovely Cambridge here. But, you know, I work partly at the University of Birmingham and obviously it's inner city Birmingham. There's always the challenge about honour based violence. Do you see anything of that? Is there any role here? Um, so I think that, that those are good questions. They're important questions. This particular intervention that we talked about, the receptionist recording data, that wouldn't help with that. No. Um, and it also wouldn't help with things like FGM, female genital mutilation, which, again, is also a important, important. But remember, this is people disclosing the information to a receptionist, usually in front of a queue and an open yeah. waiting room. Yeah. So, you know, it's a specific, different intervention. There's a whole bunch of things that you need to help people with different, important problems like that. But this intervention I'm describing, that's this isn't going to help with that. So can we do anything to help you get to 100% uptake of this, Adrian? What would work? What do you need? Um, so there are bits of legislation, and you know, I'm looking at Steve now, um, which have helped with this. So the serious violence duty came out last year, um, and that places an obligation on local authorities to work together to reduce violence. Clearly, key to this is actually, I think, engaging health in violence prevention a bit more, because I think it's something that... Most health people don't think it's that important and they look at the patient in front of them, but don't think about the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Steve, any last questions before we let Adrian Well, no, I think it's I think it's great. And I mean, look, you know, we talked with the select committee with you before. Uh, obviously, there's all sorts of workforce challenges and workload challenges. And I just wonder, you know, what, what impacts it having on morale among staff? What I like about this is that, you know, it's not just sitting there saying we need more staff, we need more money. It's saying that what can we do in our communities to try and reduce demand on our service? And that's what we're all about is reducing demand. And I love the bit that you engaged the receptionists who've taken ownership of this and they feel they're doing something meaningful. A small bit of extra, which has real meaning in their local community. I really yeah. like that angle. Yeah. And, it, you know, if we got this working in every department, we could save 60,000 attendances for violent injury across mm. England. Each, Very each good. Year. That's a lot of people saved a lot of hassle. It's a lot of people who remain economically viable while they're not having to recover from injury too. So, Adrian, it's been absolutely fab having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Uh, please take care of yourself and do recover well. Be a good patient and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. See you soon. Cheers, Adrian. Bye. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Adrian uh, telling us about what's going on in emergency departments with his crutches. We could see his crutches on the screen, couldn't he we? He was waving them, yeah. I put a I feel know. for him. That was a nasty accident. I think he was downplaying what he told us. I think he's had a nasty time. I think so too. But anyway, the bike's okay as well. Well, that's a relief. Really Notice I was worried about the bike I as well did. as Adrian's leg. He took that very um, well. Anyway, pod surgery is back. So let's hear this. Go on, what have you got, Helen? Well, I think we haven't got a lot of time, Steve, but I've just got a medical curiosity to uh, a bit of a you heard it here first story. How familiar are you with Alaska pox? Um, is this some kind of pox, like a small pox? Yeah, it's a pox family. It's an it's it's another one of the pox families you've heard of. M pox, what we used to call monkey pox. We've got cow pox and small pox and so on. So a new cox, a new pox virus was picked, it was actually first identified in 2015. There've only been seven cases ever. But the reason I bring it to you now is that the first person has died of Alaska pox. Now, all the cases have been in Alaska, but this is one of these viruses like 
the other viruses in this family that will jump from humans to animals. And this is where it's come from. We haven't yet had human to human transmission confirmed, but that's obviously what everyone's getting concerned about. Um, and I think it's a public imp information. Anybody going on holiday to Canada, you need to be aware of Alaska pox so you can prevent infection. Okay, right. Well, so, but would I have to be in Alaska for this? Yes, you would. Are you planning to go there anytime soon? No, it's not on the agenda, but I mean, you never know. It's like you, you travel a lot. Like committee's off to Sweden soon. Oh, that's nice. So, well, if know. you get in practice, will you avoid interacting with small mammals, please, when you're on your travels? I'll make that's a, where, well, yeah, that's where Alaska pox comes from. I small will mammals. make a mental note. Um, so look, loads of things going on in politics and health at the moment, as always. We, we um, on the select committee, we just kicked off this new thing called uh, leadership in the NHS. Good. Which uh, garnered so much interest already, and, and we've not really started it. So people want more information on that. If you just Google health select committee, House of Commons, you'll see what that's all about. So we're looking at what good leadership looks like in you know, ICBs, in trusts, in GP surgeries, and I might point out at NHS England. So uh, it'll be interesting. And Amanda Pritchard, obviously Chief Executive of NHS England, uh, is aware of this and really keen to engage with it. So yeah, sure uh, she is. credit to her, who I think is a very good thing. So anyway, that's it. That's where we are. We're done for this week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, podcast at stevebryan.com will reach us. Thank you for those who have. If you want to find us on social media, you can search Prevention is the New Cure. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.